our whole project is not just to relieve the symptoms of post-traumatic stress or ongoing traumatic stress, the anxiety, the agitation, the anger, the fearfulness, the nightmares and flashbacks and emotional withdrawal, but also we're always focused on where is this leading? How can people find in the ashes of this terrible trauma, how can they find some warmth and heat and, and light to bring them forward? Hi, everyone. It's Raghu back with Mind Rolling, and uh, I have the good fortune of having Dr. James Gordon. Jim has been on the podcast previously. Welcome. Great to have you here. Thank you. It's good to be back. Before we got on, of course, we were just talking a lot uh, about all of the uh, stressors that are going on in this world since we last chatted. Of course, uh, COVID not being the least of them, that's for sure. Uh, but uh, primarily, uh, I wanted to talk to you because I know that you have uh, been to Eastern Europe to Ukraine, Poland region and working over there. And of course, that's topmost on my mind for you to tell me uh, how this trip came. But it's a two trips now because you went back, right? So, yeah. twice in the last two, three months. Right. Can you talk a little bit about, uh, ob obviously, there's tremendous need there. For those of you who don't know and maybe didn't listen to the last podcast we did with Jim, um, he has been working with trauma uh, for most of his uh, career and is uh, very much an expert there. And uh, it seems natural that you would be drawn to see what you could do to help over there. But can you tell me how the denouement of that happened? Well, it's, it, it's true. I mean, it, it felt like um, it's pretty much as soon as the war started, I think the question arose in my mind, as it has in in many people, including many of the people who are listening to us, what what can I do to help? Yeah. And since I and my colleagues at the Center for Mind-Body Medicine have created programs to heal population-wide psychological trauma, beginning during wars as well as after wars and climate-related disasters, mass shootings here in the United States and with indigenous people, uh, I thought, okay, I've, I've got to go. I've got to see what we can do. And so I reached out to um, friends, colleagues, and said, who do you know? Who can you connect me with? And, you know, I think one of the things that will not surprise you and probably won't surprise many people who are listening to us is that once you sort of put the word out and once you put yourself out, if the opportunity is right and appropriate, the doors start to open. And uh, that's what happened. The doors began to open. Yeah. And I've uh, had two primary contacts, one of whom is a psychiatrist in Poland who is a friend of the guy whom I met during the war on Kosovo in 1999, who leads our program in Kosovo, who's a psychiatrist. His name's Ofram Blüter. He's a wonderful guy. And he told this psychiatrist in Poland, Eva Dobiala, who's the head of a very large international group of positive psychotherapy, he said, Eva, you, 
Don't worry about driving five hours to Warsaw from where she lives. You're going to want to meet Jim Gordon. You're going to want to hear what he's doing. You're going to want to do it with him. And Afrim was right. And Ava came. And so that we began to lay the foundation for work in Poland, because as you probably know, more than three million mm. Ukrainians have taken refuge in Poland. And many more have passed through Poland on the way to other places. At the same time, a friend of a friend of a friend, quite literally, connected me with Dr. Roman Ketcher, who's professor of psychiatry at the Uni Catholic University of Ukraine in Lviv. But I didn't know that at the time. All I knew was that he was a doctor and I had his name and I didn't have anyone else's name in Ukraine at that moment. So I said, okay, I'm going to go into Ukraine. I'll start with Roman and see what develops. But it turned out he was exactly the right person to meet with. Mm. He's not only professor of psychiatry at uh, the Catholic University, he's also the actual or de facto head of about five major psychoanalytic, psychiatric, and psychotherapeutic organizations. And he is... Uh, you know, he's the kind of person who, when you say, oh, Roman Ketcher sent me, or when he lets somebody know, I want you to meet Jim Gordon, they say, of course. It's kind of like if you think about if, if, if Ram Dass called you up and said, you know, I'd like you to meet this person. Well, Roman in the world of psychiatry has that same kind of, um, same kind of mm -hmm. reputation, that same kind of respect, that same kind of affection say that Ram Dass has in the world of, of Western meditators, in the world of seekers in the West. Mm, mm -hmm. So I met with Rahman in Lviv, uh, which is a relatively safe part of Ukraine in the West. That's the byword, isn't it? Relative? I'm sorry? Relatively is the byword here. <laughs> Going into Ukraine, I really wondered about that. But, you know, when, when you go to someplace like, or at least when I go to someplace like this, it's not that there's no fear, but I, you know, look at the situation. I look at the odds. I've been in the middle of wars before. I look at the odds, look at, choose the spots where I'm going to be, try to be as smart as I can be, and hope for the best. Mm. Ten minutes after I arrived at my hotel in Lviv, uh, an air raid siren went off. Mm. And so we had, we had our first meeting in the basement of my hotel, uh, talking about how we were going to bring a program of self-care and mutual support and community building to all of Ukraine. So that's that's how I started in Ukraine. And in that visit, and then in the next visit, most of which I spent in Kiev. Really? Oh, I did not know that. Many, many doors. Wow. Really? You see, oh, that's amazing. So you were more in Ukraine and Kiev than in Poland the second time? Well, much more. No, in Poland, the, fir the first trip, I went with a colleague, a social worker in one of our Center for Mind-Body Medicine faculty, Elita Madison. So we, we had a, it was good. It was good to meet people in Poland. It was What I was impressed by in Poland was the incredible generosity mm. of the people. I mean, there you go to the, the train station in Warsaw, and there are people just like us who are down at the train station, and they're meeting some family of five they've never seen before, or an older couple, or a couple of young people, and they're saying, you know, if you need a place to stay, you can stay with me for a few days or a few weeks, whatever you need. 
And then many, many people in the countryside and all over Poland have opened up, opened up their homes for refugees. Uh, I went to Lublin and uh, there was a refugee center there. Again, I, you know, I didn't know much about it. When I arrived, it turned out there were a hundred women and children living in this large home of a guy who had a family construction business. And this is the home that he and his girlfriend lived in. And when the war started in Ukraine, they said, we got to do something. So they gave up their jobs and they, oh, they gave up their home. They opened it. And when I went to visit, there were a hundred women and children, sort of mothers and grandmothers and aunties and a bunch of little children, almost no men, who were there who were, had fled Ukraine. And this, the guy, Lukash, who was running this place, I said, you know, what, what's this like? He said, this is the best thing I've ever done in my life. Mm-hmm. He said, I don't even know what I'm going to do after this crisis is over because this has meant more to me than everything else I've done, much more than building a business or making, making money. This, this is it. This is giving my life meaning. Mm-hmm. So that's what I saw in Poland. And then in Ukraine, I saw a whole country um, deeply, deeply traumatized uh, by what's been going on, but coming together to help each other and to participate in this effort to preserve freedom, democracy, and and life itself from the onslaught that Putin has unleashed. Yeah. Isn't it also interesting that that particular region has been... uh In turmoil for so long. I mean, historically, of course, with the the wars of the last century and so on. And uh, this is a trauma that's gone through generations, is it not? How do you um, work with, with it that way? Well, first of all, the Ukrainians know that. And they have a, they have a kind of wonderful sense of humor. And... Um, a kind of the kind of dark uh, survival <laughs> humor that's necessary for survival when you've been oppressed and occupied and <laughs> and slaughtered when the numbers of your people have been slaughtered for as you as you say for a hundred years. What they say, what people say to me, uh, is trauma is in our DNA, and these are not scientists reflecting on research on epigenetics, which indeed shows that trauma can be transmitted from generation to generation. These are people who say our grandparents either were killed or they hid out in the forest during the Second World War. Stalin sent away members of our family. Our parents never really had a childhood because they were brought up by such deeply traumatized people. And we're the children of those parents who really didn't know what it was like to have a childhood and were the grandchildren of those parents who lost so many people who were so dear to them, who were terrorized by the Nazis and by Stalin. So yeah, trauma is everywhere. And and the other thing that people say in Ukraine is, I'm not normal. I may look normal. I was talking with one of the leading intellectuals, woman about 40 years old, a publisher, editor, writer, major figure in Ukraine. And, you know, she looks great. And she's so super smart. And, 
you know, knows history and literature and politics. And she said, you know, we're talking this way. We're having a really good conversation. And I, I can still think clearly, but I am not normal. I am so self-protected. I'm even with my even with my daughter. I'm not fully present because I'm always I can feel it in myself in my body. I'm always on edge. Mm. So yeah, and this is the whole population. It's, it's beyond in this modern time that that this is is still going on. Well, uh, it is it, <clears throat> this is a battle Lest anyone doubt it, this is a battle for survival. Putin is committed to essentially wiping out Ukraine as an independent entity and doing his best to destroy Ukrainian culture, including the use of the Ukrainian language. And a, a fair amount of the war uh, has been directed against children. So it's also a war against the future of Ukraine. And the, the Ukrainian government estimates, last estimate I heard, is about 1,200 schools have been bombed. Jesus. And we know that this, I don't know if you remember, this big theater in, uh, in the east where there were hundreds of kids there and they yeah. had white, huge white letters on the top. Children, that was bombed. Maternity ward was bombed. Hospitals were bombed. So it's, it's, a, it's a war against the, the present state of Ukraine against democracy, against freedom, and against the future. Yeah. So I know when we did uh, get together last time, we talked about uh, your book, and uh, I know that you've talked about trauma as a, as a, a, a vehicle to open the door to a reconfiguration of who we are. What's and, and you talk about it, you know, hope as well that transformation can happen. But this is so intense. What what kind of a prognosis can you? I mean, obviously, the survival of the Ukrainian people in itself is in question, as you just said. But what kind of prognosis is there for a for a reconfiguration? Where these people have have hope to transform. It's a, it's a it's a great and important question. Um, I think what we're seeing already, what I'm seeing, is so the expression of so many human virtues in people in Ukraine in the middle of this incipient Holocaust, which it is, is that the the courage. Of the Ukrainian people is extraordinary. The um, the fighters on the front line, the, the soldiers, the actual military, but also the reservists. There are people 18, 19 years old who never held a gun in their hands. And people who would think of themselves as pacifists who are there fighting. And then there are the people who are taking enormous risks to take care of the fighters, to bring them food and water and clothing. And people in the towns, particularly in the eastern part of Ukraine, who are um, young people who are carrying old people five, six flights of stairs down to the basement when there's an air raid at considerable risk to themselves. So there's enormous 
bravery, generosity, reaching out to other people, uh, a sense of themselves as Ukrainian. They're, they're, they believe in democracy in a way that I'm not sure many Americans do. Because <laughs> their, their 1776 was 2014 with the Dignity Revolution that came about against corrupt Ukrainian governments that were controlled in many ways by Russia. So they are, this is a vital living concept for them. So there, there are all these kind of remarkable virtues. People are making great sacrifices. I mentioned all the women and children in Poland. That's because the men stayed behind. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the women and children didn't have to leave, but the men wanted them to be safe. And also they wanted to be able to focus on fighting. They didn't want to have to worry. Now, there are also women who are fighting as well, but it's primarily, still primarily men. So I think a great deal is coming out now. And when people in Ukraine look at my book, look at Transforming Trauma, those who are able to read it in English, um, we're getting it. I just want to mention, this is a, a plug for my publisher, Harper One. They agreed for it to be published in Ukrainian without taking any money for it. Mm. So I'm really grateful to them. I'm not taking royalties. They're not taking any money. We found a Ukrainian publisher. Oh, really? So we're going to make the book as widely available as possible to people in Ukraine. But people, when we talk about exactly the point that you're raising, about the possibility of being, of finding transformation through trauma, of trauma opening that doorway, they, they get it. They, they do understand. They don't know quite how it's going to happen, but they have had these glimpses uh, of how their own suffering, their own fear, is opening them more to other people who are also suffering. So that's the first glimpse of what is possible, mm. that this kind of this courage and this generosity and this sense of connection and this sense of national and, and cultural identity, that that will be enhanced through this shared suffering. Everybody in Ukraine is suffering. So they see it as a possibility. And when they come to the um, trainings, we, we've started doing two-day online trainings. Uh, we've had okay. 270 people come to those trainings. Mm. This is since I got back. And uh, we have 500 more people on the waiting list already. Really? The people who come through the trainings who are primarily psychologists, psychotherapists, physicians, chaplains, nurses, people like that uh, so far, uh, but we're expecting much wider group. We're expecting police and military people and others to come in the future. They're having an experience in our training in the small groups that they experience with 10 people in a small group online of sharing their experience, their pain, their uncertainty, their fear, their anger, being able to share that with each other and then finding that they are, um, they feel better. They feel more whole, more authentic. They feel like they're, in some ways, um, they're able to accommodate and include parts of themselves that they weren't able mm. to accept before, like the anger. Not yeah. so easy for people like us to admit, and people like most of the people here on this podcast, I imagine, who are not professional soldiers or cops, or, you know, the, 
and who you know care about uh, sort of living a more reflective, meditative life, to accept the kind of levels of anger that there are in the Ukrainian people, and, and they had trouble too. This, I am so angry, you know, and they would scream and shout, and, and this is the first time I've been able to talk about it. Mm. Well, have a yeah. sense that partly through our work, partly through just the sort of grace of what's possible for being humans, that that, that our whole project is not just to relieve the symptoms of post-traumatic stress or ongoing traumatic stress, the anxiety, the agitation, the anger, the fearfulness, the nightmares and flashbacks and emotional withdrawal, but also we're always focused on where is this leading? How can people find in the ashes of this terrible trauma, how can they find some warmth and heat and, and light to bring them forward? Mm-hmm. And so we are, um, that, that's our profound hope. We had an initial grant from a wonderful man named Gordon Gund of $300,000, which has enabled us to do the preliminary visits in these two-day trainings. And I'm looking, looking from, you know, we're looking to do a training for a country of 44 million people. We're looking to train a couple thousand people all over Ukraine who can work with these, the whole population, whoever wants them. And I'm, you know, I'm so far, I think the question is, can they survive? Yeah. And if they can survive as a country, uh, I feel optimistic about what is possible. Mm. And I feel that we can play a significant role. If anybody who's listening wants to support our work, I'll put in the plug uh, for the Center for Mind-Body Medicine, cmbm.org. We're a nonprofit organization, so contributions are tax deductible. We're looking. I'm looking. This is what I'm back here. In many ways, I'd rather be in Ukraine. I'm back here to, to raise funds for this project now, and I'm going... We're having get-togethers, and I'm reaching out to churches and foundations to mm. see who wants to support us. Because this this should be, you know, really important to anybody who cares about humanity, and anybody more specifically who cares about the survival of a free, democratic country, a country that is really has a lot to teach us about. Uh, about caring for one another, about democracy, about courage, about personal and collective connection. So, yeah. Anyway, that's I'm 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 I am hopeful at this point. As are the people who are coming to our trainings. Mm. I mean, they're they obviously they all have their moments of wondering, are we going to survive? And and I wonder too. But most of them don't say if we win the war. They tend to say. When we win the war. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. Oh, boy. Uh, and by the way, everybody, Center for Mind-Body Medicine. Uh, it would be great, of course, if anybody can help with what Jim has been discussing and advancing further to be able to help the people in Ukraine. But at the same time, you can go there and get uh Many, many different ways to cultivate tr- transformation of uh, trauma. So uh, in that sense, do take a look at the website. And Jim's book is just fantastic. 
And one of the things, so I had in mind to ask you, you know, and I kind of alluded to it in terms of there being a, you know, the negative of this people's fear that this is a permanent condition. And this happens, this isn't just people who are going through what they're going through in Ukraine, but this is worldwide. Every one of us at some point or another has a trauma in life. Maybe it's later in life when you're dealing with the disease or people around you dying, whatever it may be. Uh, and um, what you talked about regarding the, the people in the Ukraine and their vast, and what they're doing in Poland as well, their... Uh, commitment to courageous action and generosity. I think those are two powerful ingredients in terms of releasing one from being caught in the hopelessness of trauma, whatever one may have gone through as a, as a uh, permanent condition. Is that not true? I mean, in our in a much smaller way than obviously carrying people to safety and so on and so forth, which that stuff's right in front of your face. And and generally, people when they have that happen to them, you can do nothing but reach out. I mean, that's the the beauty of of the the human uh, reality. You know, being a human, you have no choice. It's there, and you know, I mean, for most people, that would be it. So the generosity and courage, isn't that, aren't those two extraordinary ingredients that are necessary to deal? And I mean dealing with, as I said, on a much smaller basis. Uh, absolutely. Uh, those are central and crucially important ingredients. And that's the, the lesson for Americans is not just support the people of Ukraine, but let's bring a little more courage, generosity, and authenticity into our own public and private lives. When you look at the disgrace that our Congress is and how there's so much posturing that's going on, so much, you know, spouting of lies and spouting not only lies, but lies that people don't believe in. <laughs> it's just, I mean, it's, we, we have so much that we can learn from Ukraine. And you think about how how difficult it is for us to think of ourselves as a community. We saw this with COVID. You know, people are saying, no, I'm not. Why should I wear a mask? I don't care about it. Well, you care about somebody else. There are other people in the world besides you. So my hope is that we will, that those ingredients of courage and generosity and the appreciation of connection, that those will be um, <clears throat> Those are going to be, those are what Ukrainians are experiencing. It's what potentially will allow them to move through and be transformed by these terrible events. Not to deny how terrible the events are, but to, to understand that there is, that there, there is something that we can learn from them. There is, they can act on us like those alchemical fires and purify us of some of the selfishness and some of the isolation and some of the fear that, that all of us carry within us. And let's look at them as our teachers. Mm. Let's look at them as saying, we have to do something. We have to have more of a sense that in this country, 
that we are connected to each other, that we're all part of this, uh, this republic, and that we have a responsibility to and for each other. So I'm hopeful that as they're learning in Ukraine, as they are living with greater courage and generosity and authenticity and connection, that we will learn from them. That's, that's my fervent hope. Mm-hmm. And we need it. I mean, I came back here um, while I was still in Ukraine. The killings happened in Buffalo, the, the sort of racist massacre there. And shortly after I got back, Uvalde. Yeah. Uh, the kids and the teachers were killed in Uvalde. And it, it seemed to me in some ways that the same you know, hatred, the same um, sort of unleashed cruelty and, um, that, that, we, that we see in Putin and in the troops that he's, that he's you know, forced to go to Ukraine, we're seeing that in our own society. And we need to own up to, and also the same willingness to manipulate um, reality, to present you know, a false vision of what is actually happening that Putin is doing to propagandize the Russian people, the Russian troops, to yeah. intimidate the Ukrainians. Yeah. But Trump and so many others on the right here are doing in the United States. They're mirror images of each other. Yeah, totally. And we need to pay attention to that. And I, th- I would hope that people who have believed unthinkingly in some of these lies, that as they look at Putin and probably look with suspicion, if not uh, animosity and anger at Putin, I think I hope that some of them will realize the same kinds of lies are being propagated here. And that many of us, many of our Americans, or believing in the same way that those Russian citizens whom we may be surprised at for their gullibility, that there are so many Americans who are believing in the same way. Yeah. Yes, amazing parallel, but true. So I know, uh, because we talked just before, and I, um, I believe you are, after we finish here with this podcast, you are going to be talking to one of the parents of a child that was killed in Uvalde, Texas. What in the world can one possibly... How do you start that conversation with that kind of grief? I mean, it's it's beyond. Well, that's that's a great question. And, and And it's a question that doesn't only apply to somebody who's had a child killed in Uvalde. It applies to any of us when we've lost somebody who's very dear to us. That the question is how do how do we approach how do we approach that person who suffered that grievous loss? And I, I would say the first is with humility mm. and with an understanding that the most important thing is just being there. Yes, I have many techniques to teach, many experiences of people who've been through similar situations and that all of that or much of that is in my book in transforming trauma but and I am teaching her some techniques but the most important thing is I'm just there I'm there with her um, to listen to her to um, be 
a friend. And I mean that, I didn't know it was, I was someone, someone else, a foundation that's doing some work there introduced me to it. So it's not that I knew her before, but I mean a friend in the sense of somebody who actually cares about another person and cares about the way she looks at and experiences the world, how she lives in her world. So much of what I'm doing is just being there with her and for her and helping her to find sources of comfort and strength in her own life. Mm. That's, that's most important. Uh, and then at various times, making some suggestions, teaching her some techniques, teaching the techniques I teach in transforming trauma, the same ones I use in Ukraine, slow, deep breathing, slow, deep breathing with the belly soft and relaxed, moving the body, spending a little time in nature, reaching out to people who are close to her, maybe writing in a journal, and ultimately also seeing that her suffering may have something to teach other people, that it may make a difference. I think in her case, and in the case of many of these parents, and I've worked after school shootings in Parkland and uh, mm. Sandy Hook as well, mm. the, the parents have, have vo find, not right away perhaps, but they find a, a voice and a purpose. And it may be for gun control, it may be for uh, better mental health, it may be for dealing with bullying, um, maybe mm. for programs for kids who are violent. Mm. You know, all different, they come to it in their own way. And this is part of their, as time goes on, this is part of their process of healing. There was a woman, I uh, when I was working in Kosovo, working there, I uh, worked there during the war in 98, 99, and, and after the war. And I was working in a region called Suareka, where... 80 in the south of Kosovo, where 80% of the homes were destroyed and 20% of the high school kids lost one or both parents. Mm. We're working with the high school teachers, which is why I have that statistic. <clears throat> and the teachers asked me um, to meet with a little boy uh, named Mosey. And Mosey's about seven or eight years old. And he and his mother were in a pizza parlor that were herded into a pizza parlor that the family owned. And 57 members of Mosey's family were massacred. The men were massacred in the street, the women and children in the pizza parlor. And Mosey's mother and Mosey were thrown in the back of a truck with the body, where all the bodies were to be taken to a mass grave. Um, and she was alive. And he was alive. Her other children and her husband were killed. And she, at some point, jumped out of the truck while it was speeding toward a mass grave and survived. And I saw the teachers, the, 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 her husband had been a teacher in this high school. And the teachers said, would you see Mosey? We're really worried about him. He, he doesn't talk. And he, he doesn't, can't go to school. And he's just blank-faced. You can't show people a picture of Mosey, but see the picture, you see this little boy with no expression in his face. And so I said, of course, 
let me, I'll meet with Mosey. And um, Mosey brought his two cousins with him. He didn't go anywhere without his two. These are two kids who also survived. 57 members of the family killed, but a few surviving cousins were around. And I talked with them. They really, Mosey really didn't have very much to say. I said, uh, what are you guys doing? What are you up to? And they said, we're playing football, by which they meant soccer. And, uh, and I could see a little smile on Mosey's face. When I said, oh, you, 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 you like playing soccer? And he said, yes, but only with my cousins. I said, okay, that's great. That's wonderful that you're doing that. So we talked a little bit more, and I wrote a prescription, which was then translated into Albania. And it said, play football with your cousins every day. Big letters. <laughs> Mosey looked at it and cut out all three kids smiled. A couple of months later, I went back again. And apparently Mosey had gone from playing soccer with his cousins to playing soccer with other kids, and he was now back in school. And this got his mother interested in, in talking with me. She'd not been interested at all. And when I met her, and met her, she was the saddest woman I've ever seen in my life. Hmm. And <clears throat> she came with a friend, and I want to emphasize the importance of other people when you've gone through this kind of loss or this kind of trauma. And the friend had come through our training program at Kosovo. And Mosey's mother really didn't want to talk much. She was willing to see me, but she didn't really want to talk. And the friend, so I started talking with a friend. Um, you start wherever you can when people have been through this terrible trauma. And so I started talking about our training program. And what did she like most about the training program? And she said, well, I like I liked the breathing, and I like the shaking and dancing, and I like the mental imagery. But most of all, I like the yoga. We <laughs> taught yoga every day. Mm. I said, great. And have you been doing it? She said, yes, I do it every day. And I said, would you be willing to teach your friend yoga? She said, of course. And I asked Mosey's mother, would you be willing to do yoga with your friend? She said, sort of nodded her head. I said, I I'm sorry? She said, yes, very quietly. I said, great. She was, that was the start of her recovery. Mm -hmm. Within a couple months, she was at a job, working at a job in a factory, a year later, she was at The Hague at the International Court testifying against Milosevic for the mass murder and Suareka of her family. So she'd gone from being almost totally wiped out as a human being to this place where she took a, an active and significant part in bringing this horrible dictator, terrorist dictator to justice. And it began simply with being with her and then with finding that place with her where some change was possible, just as I had with her son, just as I'm doing with the woman in Uvalde. Mm. So that's the most important thing, just being with people, looking for that possibility, looking for what is already being of help or what might be of help. And then suggesting 
where it seems appropriate. One of the techniques that I have used for you know, 40, 50 years. And in, in the case of the mom in Uvalde, I taught her soft belly breathing, which she's doing every day now. And she's going for walks and she's moving her body. And it's going to be slow. It's excruciating. The other thing is you have to acknowledge, always acknowledge the pain. When people say to somebody who's just lost a child, it's going to be better, they ain't going to believe it. You know, why should they? It seems like the whole, everything is totally closed down. Well, now things are opening up and she's connecting more with her other kids and there are other possibilities that are, that are opening. It's not, mm. the grief is horrible, but other possibilities are there. So our job as human beings, not just as psychiatrists like me doing programs of trauma healing, but our job with our friends and people we care about is just to be there for them and to offer ourselves um, and to yeah. help them you know, see what might be helpful to them mm. without any expectations uh, and without preaching. No, they don't need preaching. Yeah. <laughs> and they don't, they don't need, unless they're asking for it, somebody coming in and saying, you have to do this, you have to do that. Share your own experience. That's another thing. So I, you know, when I, when I talk to her about grief, I might, and I think I have said to her, you know, one of the things that I found, my brother died, I think, I mentioned this to you at the beginning of the pandemic. One of the things that's helped me through my grief is when I feel so down in the morning, physical exercise and movement. So I might share that. I say, well, you know, one of the things, if it seemed appropriate, one of the things that I found helpful when I lost my brother, and I did say that, sir, is moving my body. I feel like I don't want to move. I don't want to get out of bed. I don't want to do anything. But if I find, or I did find, if I started moving, then things shifted. I looked at the world differently. Hmm. Yeah. You know, it strikes me, though, uh, the when you tell the story and and you said to both the child and, and the mother, well, would you get together with them and can you teach them this? And can you get together with your friend and teach her yoga? And the immediacy of... Uh, how a person, the, the chemical changes that seem to happen in, in my own experience and, and seeing people uh, do this, when you reach out to somebody else, it's, it's like uh, we were talking about the courage and the generosity of people who have no choice. It's right in front of you. There's no thinking. There's no thought process. In this case, when you've gone through this tremendous trauma, uh, losing a child, losing family, I mean, stuff that's beyond our ken here, uh, and that you, the moment that you actually reach out, and you prompted them, Jim, hey, well, okay, you could teach your friend some yoga or with the kid, you could play soccer with you, reaching out is uh, it's such a powerful thing. It changes everything. I mean, Ram Dass used to talk about this all the time uh, in, in this film, Becoming Nobody, that we did. My favorite part is where he, he just absolutely suggests, when is what you want enough? When is what you need enough? It's way more interesting to see go out and serve people. 
and that it's 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 a a big time remedy for so many things, particularly getting out of the land of uh, we call me me land. You know, the movie of me. Um, it, it's it's a powerful antidote alongside of and and I know some of the things that you you know you talk about breath work and meditation and movement and self expression and and by the way. To me, and I'm, I know you're doing this, but one of the biggest things, and this is for people, it's not a matter of simply speaking of it through the lens of trauma, but through the lens of separation, feeling like you are not part and not connected with other people, is to get in a, uh, with a group of people and be able to express who you are, who other people are to you, how we are more similar than um, apart. Yeah. And it's... Yes. And what's foundational to our work in Ukraine is teaching the people we're training not only how to teach the techniques to individuals, but how to create a group and Mm -hmm. how to create a truly meditative group where you're not analyzing or interpreting or interrupting people judging giving them a chance to make discoveries of th- yeah. about themselves and to share with each other that's yeah. so important yeah on a lighter note here because i saw something that struck me we didn't talk about last time uh and i saw the picture i, I don't know some blog social media somewhere of you at Woodstock, which is going to be whatever the umpteenth year anniversary in August of Woodstock, and you actually were there, and you ended up. I think what were you, were you at that time uh, uh, graduated as a doctor? I can't remember. I was a resident in psychiatry. Oh, you were residency in in uh, New York in the Bronx, actually, at that time. So how did you get there? Just well, as I said, we're getting a little lighter here because of the uh, what that was. One thing but, I want to make a point about lightness is that as people go through these dark passages, then lightness is genuinely possible. Mm. But they have to experience the grief and the anger and the pain and the fear. Yeah. And then I was I just mentioned this. I'll come back to Woodstock. I was working with twenty chaplains in Ukraine, army chaplains, Catholic chaplains, who are working with soldiers on the front lines. So they're risking their lives and also working in uh, hospitals where their injuries are terrible and there are very many of them to the the combatants. And they're very serious. But once we um, got them up, once I got them up shaking and dancing and these guys were laughing. They said, we haven't laughed. It's been, mm. you know, that we, we haven't laughed at all these last four months. And we've hardly laughed in the last eight years because of the war at the start of the East. So we were able to, they, you said, once we started feeling the sadness and the anger, now we're laughing. It's, it's amazing. So I, I just want to say that that lightness is there and can be there even in very dark situations. Mm. Mm-hmm. Woodstock was... Um, I was uh, I was out with my uh, girlfriend, who is a, a a nurse, crisis intervention nurse, and, and a writer. And we were on we were on a, a three or four or five day vacation, and I got a call from some someone whom some of the people on the podcast may know, Phil Wolfson, who now is one of the primary 
sort of researchers on the use of ketamine. Uh -huh. And Phil called and said, hey, uh, I'm up at Woodstock, and this, this is, we're, we're going to need help. <laughs> you know, there are hundreds of thousands of kids coming here. Can you get up here? If you weren't that, I mean, you were what, around 30 or something at that time? It was about, what was it, 69? I was 28. Yeah, okay. 28, 69. Not was it, of course. So we flew up. Sharon, Curtin, and I uh, flew up. And I don't remember exactly the airport. And then we went in a helicopter with Joan Baez and her mom uh, into Woodstock. And there we were. And we decided to set up our... Uh, our, our, our tent in our first aid operation. Uh, we're uh, sort of at the, the back of the amphitheater where the main stage was. And because uh, that's where, you know, the vast majority of people were gathered. So we, you know, slogged through the mud. We got there, we, we set up a tent and hundreds and hundreds of kids came. These, most of the people who came, or many of them, they'd never been in the country. They were scared of being in the country. <laughs> On top of that, they were taking who knows what yeah. kind of, you know, acid or amphetamine or peyote yeah. or, you know, well, God knows what anybody was saying. God may have known. Nobody else really knew. They would have periodic <laughs> announcements. Watch out for the red pills. Yeah. They're <laughs> laced with strychnine. <laughs> so we had hundreds of kids lined up for the, at, at our first aid tent, but the a very significant number of them were having bad trips. So I, I put out a, a call to the hog farm and they came and they wavy, set up- Wavy gravy, everybody. Wavy gravy and his crew. And they set up a big tent and I brought all the, everybody who was having trouble with their reactions to whatever they were taking into the tent. And I had the, um, the people who were, uh, freaked out on uppers of one kind or another, walk around the people who are on downers. I love that. That's the, the greatest thing I ever heard, Jim. Okay. Each one was doing, you know, <laughs> the people on downers were staying awake, the people on uppers were doing a good deed, and they were you know, <laughs> using that energy in a useful way. Uh, and all so the people who were on bad trips, the hog farm brought me a bunch of candles. I set up a bunch of candles. I told those kids, you sit with each other, you hold each other, listen to the music, relax. So I had as many as 100 people in that tent. And periodically, you know, I circulated around the tent, wanted to make sure how people yeah. were doing. And uh, Sharon handled most of the medical first aid, and I'd go there some of the time. So uh, that was my experience. That was my, you know, two, three days at Woodstock. <laughs> so. People and... Uh, I can't believe we never, I mean, you know, I knew of, I wasn't there. I was actually at uh, the radio station. It was the one person left while all the DJs went to Woodstock. I was a PD. But, of course, I knew about Wavy doing this kind of thing, you know, helping people with bad trips. But I never, well, I didn't, obviously, I didn't know about you until, you know, five, eight years ago or whatever. But uh, that's fantastic. That is so fun. And then, and then the last thing, you know, that I saw this little, I picked it up in some article, uh, blog, the sun's coming up and Hendrix is doing the star spangled banner. <laughs> that was the finale of the, 
Oh my God. Yeah, it was beautiful. There were many very beautiful things about it. I mean, there were a lot of lost and kids, you know, kind of scared and lost. But it was also, it was, it was, it was a really good thing of people coming together and of, you know, Wavy and his crew and so many, many people. This is, this is an example of, you know, community of a sort. Yeah. And of generosity, and you know, none of us, yeah. none of us are getting paid. And we know it's yeah. just, yeah. you know, we our satisfaction is being helpful to other people. Yeah, and I think it was an example of that. And you know, a lot of time Woodstock was it a, you know, was it a world changing event? No. Was it the civil rights movement? No. But it was, it was a time when people had a sense. That it was possible for a large number of people to come together and peacefully, yep. and for people to sort of um, step outside themselves to help each other out. Mm. Yeah, and it was a good uh, time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know we got you have to leave, but I have to ask you one question, and it's a little parallel to what we're talking about here with all the experimentation with uh, ethnogens and so on at Woodstock, and in that time, of course. Uh, what is your feelings about the efficacy? I mean, there's large-scale um, studies going on, and very successfully, people like uh, Rick Doblin at MAPS are doing. But what is your um, gut-level uh, reaction to the possibilities that uh, particularly MDMA and um, psilocybin have regarding uh, trauma? I think... I, I and thanks for asking the question. I think I think there are tremendous possibilities, and um, I've seen a number of the studies. I've looked at some of the films. I've talked with seriously traumatized veterans who have tried everything else, and for whom uh, MDMA uh, or, in some cases, ayahuasca mm. proved totally transformative. Mm. So I I think the uh, plus I've spent quite a bit of time in Brazil and have done many sessions of ayahuasca uh, and have watched people who were very deeply traumatized have watched the changes in those people. So I know it and I can, you know, I know the difference. I know the difference ayahuasca in particular has made to me. Really? In terms of showing me other realities, helping me to work through some of the trauma in my life. Mm. So I'm very hopeful. Um, we haven't yet at the Center for Mind-Body Medicine worked with entheogens because our work primarily is on a very large scale with whole populations, that whether yeah. it's in Gaza right. or Israel or Parkland after the shooting or in the VA system or we're working with the Capitol Police. However, I'm talking with Rick Doblin about ways to work together, to combine our small group mm. model mm. with the use of entheogens, and if you can work with groups, you can maximize the use of entheogens, make it much more uh, cost-effective and much more available to people who don't have resources. Mm. So I'm hopeful, I think, the, I, ho- I hope that those lessons, you know, I appreciate, you know, what Rick has done has been amazing in terms yeah. of totally uh, t- taking a real scientific look you're working with the government, Scientific. not easy, too, you know, to work with government agencies through this that has been vilified for so long. And Michael Pollan's book has been helpful. Yeah. And, you know, every, yeah. you know and, and 
much of the mainstream media has been mixed. I mean, some of it's still pretty snarky, some of the coverage, but some of the coverage is much more respectful. Uh, I, I think it's very hopeful, and I think it will show us what is possible for people who are deeply traumatized. Mm. And my, my hope is that, that it will spread, particularly from those veterans who are, you know, not, you know, identified as being part of coastal elites or a progressive minority, but veterans who are just perfectly, you know, ordinary but brave Americans of all different political beliefs, that though their experience, I hope, will inspire so many others in um, public life, but also just ordinary people who are often skeptical of the possibility of change in consciousness to become interested. Mm, yeah. And so my hope is that this is the, the early stages. I suppose it's uh, probably the, the, the second or the third wave, the 60s being the second wave. There was a <laughs> sort of earlier mm. wave of kind of spontaneous experimentation. Of course, indigenous people have been using entheogens for tens of thousands of years. Yeah. But I think now we are in a place where we can really begin to um, to see how valuable they may mm, be and to yeah. find ways to make them much more widely available. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Widely and safely available. Yeah. Not like at Woodstock, where nobody <laughs> knew what they were taking. <laughs> and, uh, and I was, remember. And there was nobody to sit with uh, them until we set up this tent. But now the way it's being done is very thoughtful. The people are having an opportunity. They know what they're taking. There are people there with them to help them through the experience. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I am hopeful about mm. the, yeah. the sort of the light that uh, experience with entheogens is going to bring to Yeah, absolutely. I'm totally agreement. Uh, I think Alpert and Leary, will, they were right. Set and setting mm. is extremely important. And of course, uh, the press has been really so crazy. The 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 way in which, as I said before, this has been vilified for so long. It's taking a lot, and and people like uh, like you, Jim, and and like what uh, what's happening at Maps with Rick and so on. Um, it's it's a Big, big, uh, fantastic change that really is going on that's so important uh, for, to support the kind of works certainly that you've been doing. And uh, let me just say thank you. I must say thank you, Jim, for what you have been doing all these decades. And in particular, I mean, uh, I could have gone on about we are all under so much stress and there is so much trauma. You just look around environmentally with COVID, with the war, with the, the polarization. Uh, I mean, it's, it, there's an endless list, and it's, nobody can just turn away from it, the economic conditions that we're in now. So this is such valuable uh, information that you provide, perspective that you have provided. So I urge everybody to go to Center for Mind, Body, Medicine, so it's it's C M B M. Is that dot com? No, cmbm.org. We welcome all contributions, all participation. Uh, you can look on the website if you want to, you know, help specifically with Ukraine. We really welcome that. We welcome people who want to be trained to do this work. Mm. 
bring it back to your really important. Yeah. And if you're working with low income communities and you don't have much money, we'll, we'll create at least a generous partial scholarship for you. We mm. want we want to we are a community. You talked about the importance of and we both talked about the importance of groups and community. Yeah. We are a living healing community. And mm. this is an invitation to everybody who's listening who wants to join the community. Mm. And if you want to find out more about the specific techniques and the approach, the book is called Transforming Trauma and uh, Open Healing. So Yeah, and we'll have uh, we'll have links great. to all of what we have been talking about. Uh, you go to uh, BeHereNowNetwork.com slash mindrolling and uh, look at the show notes and all of the links that will help. And, and part of our discussion here today will be available. And I'm so happy uh, you took some time out, Jim, to, to spend this with, with us. It's uh, really unbelievable work. And uh, it's, it's, it's good to be with you. And I hope sometime I'll have a chance to see you. Um, and where you are live. Yeah. Yeah. I'll have to come along with our friend Move together. Be- yeah. Right. I have to get along with him and be a grip or something <laughs> on one of the shoots he does with you. So, uh, we'll look forward again. Thank you. And everybody, uh, it's, uh, this is uh, be here now network, go to be here now network.com. And there's a plethora of amazing teachers and thought leaders, uh, that is available on be here now. Ramdas is right about that. Be here now. Jim, we'll see you next time. Thank you again. Thank you, Raghu. See you soon, I hope. <laughs>